let me let me start with the answer and work backwards, okay? Because that way I won't run out of time. All right. So. <laughs> Okay, but let me just summarize. God forgive me for you to try. Well, I can take everything in the world that's patterned after the Trinity and so forth. I think there are three biblical ways, there are three biblical uh, approaches to, to balancing the rightful obligations of the church and state and what we should do in response to Christians and Christian church. One of them is what I'll call a covenant. Approach. One is what I'll call a natural law approach, and one is what I'll call a, a fully Bible only. Or a, 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 I'll just call these the main emphases. These are not, I just say these are the main emphases, and this is what I'll call Christian obedience. To me, the question is not when we disobey, the question is how do we obey? Okay, so we need to keep the question. What, what is the question we're trying to answer? We always obey God, and how do we do that? And so let me just briefly summarize these. You know, the biblical approach, I would argue, where the Bible and the Word of God is the principal and foremost principle to almost the exclusion of all others, and really I go to Calvin, you know, and, and Beret, and I'll get into, I'll, I'll, I'll explore that a little bit more here, but it's really a principle that, you know, we follow Romans 13 to the fall. Okay, we honor honor the magistrate. It does allow for uh, rebellion of inferior magistrates, although that was not maybe where Calvin started initially as that developed that had that idea in there. But but the individual themselves is to submit and honor authority in all forms, fashions, and shapes. Okay, period. All right. Uh, and 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 the Bible. And if you are going to quote. Do something that may appear to be disobeying the magistrate. You, you know, and, and again, we'll get into the distinction. But in summary, we got the church and the state. The church. It's important. To, it's important to have these landmarks. We have the regular principle of worship, where we only only thing that can bind our conscience is the Word of God, and, and it, that's why that's why and, and why is it important to do that in worship? Well, worship is who we were made to be, how we were made to be in its ultimate form. It is the ultimate realization of who we are. So for all, in all purposes in worship, we need to have the principle only according to the Word of God. We don't need to bring in other ways and other manners. It needs to be strict. So, so the rule in the church is according to the Word of God. The question is, what is the rule in the secular state? Well, it's not so clear, but this is clear. And this view holds this very clearly in, in place. And almost all of them, now to, me, to, be, to be biblical, all of them have to in some form, fashion, or shape. But I think the summary of the view is we should obey the magistrate except where it causes us to disobey Scripture. Now that, that's the fundamental essence of the, of the nub. And even Calvin would allow that, okay? So I'll, I'll say, now, but you can go to the extreme in this view where you can... Uh, take this as there's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's no such thing as, you know, that, that God did, never intended that. There was no such thing. There's no rightful place for that. It's strictly, here we are against the state, and Christians are never going to get together in, in, a, in a civil society, and, 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 which, which, which to me is maybe wrong. You have the natural law view, which is very prevalent. And if you want to know more about that, I would recommend Drunen. He, he ably defends it. He argues it has, has very deep uh, roots. 
But the question is, what is a natural law? And the issue is, the natural law is, you know, what is within us in our conscience. But we all know that we're fallen and sinful and our conscience is corrupted. So how can that be a guide? Do, do, we, do, we, do we say, okay, my conscience tells me to do, or natural law tells me to do this, but the Bible tells me to do that. You know, is there a conflict? I mean, if there is, there's a problem. And so the bottom line is that there are two natural, I, I, there are many, but I'm going to summarize them in two large groups. There is a, what I'll call a biblical natural law view, which our confession kind of upholds, where there is within man a conscience implanted by God. Where did the conscience come from? God. What is the driving fundamental principles of that conscience? God's will, his, his mind, and his will. Both. Not just his mind. Not just logic, but his will. Some things that God, some laws that God, like in, like in the garden. The laws that Adam were to obey were the ones by his nature, but also there were positive laws given by God that couldn't be derived from nature, that based on God's will. So, so that law really is not, you can't just say, but, oh, it's equal to the law of reason. Well, no, it's not. Because God's, you know, you, you, not everything, let's go back to the garden. Was it all based on reason? No, it can't be equal to reason. It's a combination of both law and authority from God. It has both positive law and natural law. So, so some people take this to the extreme of all. Well, my reason tells me that I need to disobey the king because of some natural principle. Okay, maybe, like for example, let's take Knox to the extreme. Knox on steroids. You can't have a woman as king of a civil state. Okay, and Knox was very, and I'm not, I don't want to mix up. Take a lot of Knox, I'll bring him up later as a positive example. But my point is, let's go, what does the Bible say? The Bible makes clear you can't have a female as an ecclesiastical head, but it's not so clear on whether a woman can be a civil head or not. Okay? And we can argue that, we can debate that, but I want, at least you have to concede me it's not as clear. All right? So, so, but to argue from the natural law, and I, I hope I'm not losing my audience based on, based on the argument I pick. I'm just picking one that kind of gets to the point. We can use the natural law. Oh, well, uh, by nature, we have a right for self-defense. Well, let me ask you this. Where does self-defense fit in Romans 13? Is self-defense the only thing that we have to consider in this equation? I mean, is that it? Well, if that's the case, well, then we can throw most of Romans 13 out the window. Okay, uh, you know, but, but, but the point is there, there is a balance. So the question is, what is this natural law? There is what I'll call a biblical natural law where it comes from God. It reflects God's will and his mind and his manner and his word. That natural law, because by man, there is a conscience implanted for us. It leaves us without excuse. And we as fallen men, if we follow that fallen conscience, we can get it a real... If that's the natural law, if that's the reason of the natural law, well, then we're in trouble. So, so anyway, we have to be careful here because if we start heading in this, I call this appropriate balance. If we, have, if we put too much emphasis on this natural law in and of itself where it can contradict Scripture or apart from Scripture or independent of Scripture, well, then that's wrong. That's not a biblical view. But there, is a natural, but there is a place for that conscious in there. Look at our liberty of conscience. That, that's an important thing in our confession. We have a whole chapter on that, okay? The moral law written within our hearts. All men have the moral law written in their hearts, okay? Even, even unregenerate men. 
They may not have the, that re renewed by the scripture and renewed in the image of Christ, but they have the moral law in heart enough to be accountable to God for it. And so the question is, what is this natural law we're talking about? So when they use words like natural law, now I think, for example, Drandruna is very good, but it kind of crosses the line by saying that the moral law, the natural law, is equal to the moral law. Well, yes, and if you view it that way, if that is your basis for that natural law, yes. But if not, you know, that's where the confusion gets into. You can use these terms. You can be too biblical to the point where you deny this reality. And, and like, for example, Anabaptists. Well, we just don't have anything to do with it. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna live our own little spiritual life apart from the world. Well, no, we were not made to be in communion. Okay, you can take the other extreme where you take the natural law. Oh, it's, I, by reason tells me I can't do it, I shouldn't do it, therefore I shouldn't do it. Well, what's the whole point of the Bible? Is reason appear to be certainly in agreement with? I'm not trying to say they're in conflict, but they can be in fallen man. But what I would argue here is without, well, let's say we had a world where we didn't have that third view. Well, then we're here. This is where I say the PCA is today. We're in here where we're natural law and the Bible, okay? We're in this world of having to balance these two things, and we kind of fall out somewhere along there. And, and the church and state is in this flat world right now in our theological thinking. America reduces that down to, to too much of an emphasis on this natural law. So anyway, my point is, there is, I will argue for this, and I know I'm, I'm, some people will call me a, put me, put me in the wrong category for this, but I think there is such a thing as a Christian nation where a nation can covenant together to be obedient to God and where the majority of the people sign a covenant and an agreement in such a nation, in such a land, there are different rules. Okay, it's a different world. There, are di there is such a thing, and there are different rules. That's the point I'm trying to make. And when you read... The, 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 the English reformers or whatever else, they're kind of in that land. There was a nation which was committed to Christ, so you have to kind of put that in perspective of where they are. My argument very simply is, this is, this is an, it's not the only agreement, but it's an important agreement. You've got to have a covenant, but you've got, you've got a base of the Bible, you've got to recognize it. So to me, a biblical view of civil obedience is a combination and a balance of those three things in a biblical way. The Bible, the Word of God, is used as the balance of keeping in respect. And, and to me, if we throw out the idea of a covenanted Christian nation as a possibility, I mean, let me state it another way. There is how, like, how nature is. If we, if we were to base what's right and wrong based on how nature is, well, then we'll never figure out what's right Now, what's wrong. We have to understand what is, there's, what is, what is, what is the ideal condition that man was created in, society was created in, society ideally was created to be in covenant with God. That was the pattern in the Old Testament. The general equity of all of those Old Testament rules applies today. So we have that guy. So the point of getting at is, please don't throw out that idea. Please don't say there's no such thing as a Christian nation. But, I, but as I said last week and said again and again and again, this is something that doesn't happen by our will. It happens by God's will. Only God can bring that about because as John Knox said during the Reformation, his, he was so overwhelmed by God's outpouring of grace, he described as men falling like rain that were coming down like rain. Christians, they went from nothing to, you know, 
of the whole nation being kingdom. In 1560, almost all the nations in Europe had, had reformed confessions, okay? All right, you know, so, so that can happen. There have been periods in time where that has happened or near happened. I'm not going to try to say this is perfect, this is there, but it does represent a condition where man can be our original founders, perhaps, were, came to America to have that kind of condition. So all I'm arguing is, yes, that there is such a thing that can exist, and it changes the dynamic. It changes the logic of when and how you fit into this. Okay, are we talking about obedience in a covenant nation where a king has sworn, or a magistrate of the government has sworn, and our constitution requires at least some biblical framework and the government says, no, we're going to throw out it out the window. That's one level of obedience, okay, versus a situation where you don't have that and not. So that's all Knox was arguing for. He was saying we're coming in land, we're coming with God, we have to obey that. Now, no, it can get kind of squirrely if you take that to extreme, just like all of these can. But I'm arguing that true Christian obedience is, has to be understood in a context. That's my, that's my argument in summary. Let me move into the details here. I apologize for my printer. I was hoping to get one last spurt out of it. Okay. And some of you got the last spurt. Okay. Some of you got near the last spurt, but none of you got a very good spurt. But anyway, these are the, these are the books that I've kind of reviewed. It would be worthwhile to spend a quarter going through each of these books, you know, one time, one, one day at a time, because they all bring an important distinction here. But let me just say that the way I've got them organized, on the left, I'm organized a little differently. You have on the bottom what I would call the, uh, not all the way across the bottom, but at least starting, you have the, the gods. The, the really, I should have had three rows here to get them in line with what I've set up here, but I've kind of got them a little bit disorganized. But anyway, you have Calvin's view, Calvin's Institutes. You have then, the, and, and you have, and he and Luther both were very much the Reformation started here, okay, no doubt about it. This is where the center of gravity was in Calvin and the Reformation's view. Then you have a movement in this direction, towards natural law, and, 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 and towards these arguments. You have even Beza bringing in some of those. You have the, uh, the, the when, King, when, Queen, when Mary, Mary uh, Bloody Mary came to power in England, the Puritans left, Panette, and Goodwin uh, wrote some treatises, and they were they were getting into this. And they, were, they were using this natural law argument, and and they weren't as careful as I would like them to have been. Okay, relative to that moral law, natural law, because you take natural law to the extreme, you say, well, okay, lions always do this, and and, and animals always do that. I mean, you, you base it you base it on analogies of from nature. Okay, well, analogies from nature are good. Well, let me answer this. They're analogies to the Trinity. Are any of the analogies to the Trinity perfect? No, they're, they're, analogies by nature are helpful, but they're not perfect, okay? So when you use an analogy as a guide, you need to understand it's not necessarily always perfect. Anyway, they, they kind of took this to an extreme to, to a degree, okay? But they were, they were trying to say, well, hey, Calvin, yeah, you're right. You know, we, 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 the king has done this, he's done that, etc. But anyway, let me move forward here. You have, and, 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 and so you then have, so that's sort of the first two columns. Beza is sort of in that camp, kind of follow, he's sort of straddling both camps, a little bit of a natural law argument, but mainly back on Calvin's camp, mostly. You have John Knox, 
who brings in another strand. Although you find this strand in Panette and Goodwin, you get it more clearly in, in, in Knox of this. Okay. There is such a thing as a Christian nation, and in a Christian nation, there are different rules, and that there's a different level of obedience. Rome was not a Christian nation in, in, in Romans 13. And he argues, well, you know, well, anyway, that's the argument, that, that the rules changed, so to speak. And, and, and they were trying to find more of a heaven on earth. They were trying to find a society which was ideal. Let me just point out here. You can't read it very well here. I'm not sure I can read it here on the way this is printed. But uh, Knox and, 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 the, and the leading uh, Christian leaders of, of Scotland got together and they called themselves the Congregation. Okay, And, and they, they formed a, a pledge of bond of unity and, and a covenant. They pledged to keep constant amity, unity, and fellowship together. So they agreed that they were going to be united. To do all things required of God in the Scripture, and to destroy and put away all things that dishonor His name, so that God may be truly and purely worshipped. Their aim was pure worship. Their aim was to restore man's society back to a true worship of God. That was, their, that was the guiding principle. It's all, you know, bottom line, brothers and sisters, it's all about worship. Who do we worship? Who do we worship? That's what Knox was coming from. A, a nation, a society ought to, in some sense, although it, it kind of blurred the distinction of church and state, you could argue that, but he believed that there was such a thing and he put that in there. And third, to spare no labors, got goods, substance, bodies, and lives to the defense of the members of the congregation. In other words, they were going to be united to defend one another, that they were going to, there were really three separate principles involved there. You know, and Sir William Stewart, Sir James Stewart, and, and James Sterling, uh, there, there's, a, there's a wrestling in the church. There's sort of a book written there of how, you know, it kind of gives you more of the context of, of how this was going along there. And, and again, it kind of follows into the natural law stuff sometime too. But anyway, Nat, Knox was sort of what I would call, he tried to come up with a way to balance these things. He's more balanced than the rest. At least you can say that. All right. And, and, so, so I would argue that, that he's probably closer than most, but maybe he's a little bit too much up here. All right? Okay. Then you have what I would call the next, the fourth column. On one end, you have when to obey. Beret. Okay. Pierre Beret. And let's just flip over a few pages here, and let's just get to, you know, I've kind of gone into the historical context last week, so I'm not going to redo that. Go to the page that says about the fourth page, France, Knox, France, two natural law theories. That's right here. The, the issue was, as, as, and I went through last week and showed how over time that by before 1560, many of these revol around 1550, particularly 1540, 1550, the Catholics had kind of thrown the Lutherans out of Germany. Uh, France, the Huguenots, or Huguenots, depending upon whether you use an American French pronunciation, were, were being thrown out of France. Uh, in Spain, uh, Scotland was uh, under uh, Mary, who was uh, betrothed to a, to a Catholic uh, prince at one time, and then later to a Catholic, so it was a very much a, a, a constant battle there. You know, you have uh, uh, Mary in England. So it would have looked like, if you, if you took a snapshot, it would look like there was no hope for the church. But God is working to bring about His glory in ways we don't understand. 
But anyway, in France, the question is, when do you obey the civil magistrate? And as I said last week, the context is they asked for a, you know, we had, they, the, 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 the Catholic Church in France had basically whooped them, all right? And they basically said, okay, we're going to be magnificent. We're going to let you worship, but you need to give us the keys to your church. And they struggled. Do we really do this? I mean, you know, and Beret's argument was that you need to do this because the, that was a thing the civil magistrate was asking you to do. It doesn't threaten the gospel itself. This was the, the line that Beret drew. It doesn't threaten the gospel. You're still able to preach the gospel. You're still able to worship but you just can't do it in a building. And he says that that's not a sufficient biblical line for revolution, is an argument. Now, we can argue that, okay? Now, no, Knox wouldn't have accepted that, okay? Knox wouldn't have argued that, but never that was Beret's argument. And again, there's a lot to be said there. And, and, and Beret makes such a convincing case. If you want to read this, this is when to, see the word dis and obey there? That's why I keep, that, that's why I keep mentioning, this is really a question of obedience. That's where he's coming from. And, um, you know, he basically said, we must honor and, and we must give honor and obedience to the magistrates unless it violates our conscience. He insists scripture is not an imperfect law, but encompasses all that concerns his glory and the good of mankind. Further, natural law upholds uh, uh, patience and suffering as he turns the enemy's weapons against them. Okay. To do otherwise is not to advance the gospel and to turn our liberty into carnal confidence and, and, and great butchery. God says vengeance is his. Christ says, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And that he promised the, the, meek, the meek, it's really the meek, will overcome and inherit the earth. Victory is through strength and power, not by becoming wolves. So Veray's argument is, hey, we're sheep by nature. We don't solve this problem by becoming wolves, okay? And, and that's where he was coming from. And he drew a distinct hard line. Does, is what the civil magistrate asking you to do a threat to the gospel itself? Okay. Well, then I come to the question, well, how did that work out for them? Well, guess what? Not so well, all right, in a secular sense. The, the same authorities that had gathered all the, all the nobility of the Huguenots and all the, uh, to a, to, on the pretense of a wedding between the king's son and, and one of the Huguenots, and a pretense of that, they were brought to the Paris, they were wiped out. Uh, but after this agreement, the, they said, well, okay, we can at least worship. Well, the same Catholics who were opposing their worship saw, saw, walked by and saw a huge crowd of like 600 people worshiping in a barn or by a barn. We couldn't fit in the barn. So no, he can't massacre them. And so that sort of set into stage this continued uh, battle over and over and over again. So they really, they really was a false promise. They really were like, okay, we'll you do this and we'll stop. But let me ask you this. When, this, when a tyrant says do this and stop, is that ever enough? Can you, can you ever stop feeding them? Okay. And, and anyway, so all I'm getting at is that, is that I admire Beret. I admire his logic. His logic, we ought, we ought to always start here. Okay. And if we don't know, go here. Okay. This is safety. This is defense. This is sanity. Okay. The Bible. Okay. The Bible alone. That's really where he's coming from. We're not, well, who are we fundamentally? We are sheep. We are not wolves. We don't solve the problem by becoming wolves. We, we go to God. God will solve the problem. It puts the focus on God to solve the problem. It recognizes that we are sent out 
and, and, we've, and it said we'll suffer and, and we'll pay, you know, that, that's what somehow God's using that in his purposes to accomplish, to overthrow our kingdoms. Perhaps the Roman Empire, when Roman soldiers were no longer willing to kill Christians because they saw something vital within the nature of Christians that they just said, I can't do that anymore. I can't do it, okay? There's something about that witness. There's something about God working through that that accomplishes his purposes and that his kingdom is greater than ours. So whatever I say here, if it's something in contradiction, that throw me out the window. But there is sanity, though. But that still, that still assumes a world where only this exists. Okay? Although there are some natural laws, right? he even gives some natural law arguments, and one time he used them himself. So I'm not trying to say he's totally there, but he's probably more, you know, he's probably more in this camp, all right? of where he would be. Now, the other extreme would be the Vindicae, which was written uh, in France by a pseudonym, Brutus, and uh, it, it, it goes a lot more into the natural law arguments, although it's still very biblical in its framework. So I would argue that it is close to a biblical argument that uses the natural law, but it kind of kind of tilts, it kind of goes in that direction a little too much. All right, it's kind of over here. So if I had to say books here, Here's when to obey, then to when, when, under what circumstances with a king, okay? And there are a lot of good principles here, okay? And, I, and I'll get into that. If you flip back over to the, first of all, let me go before I do that. Let me indicate there are two theories of natural laws. I've said that before in one of my introductions, but let me repeat it again. One view, which is what I'll call the Catholic Jesuit view, which is natural, that natural law is the same as right reason. If our reason tells us that something is right or wrong, well, then that's all we need to know, okay? That, that, that's the guy, that that's where natural law is, or by our deduction from analogies. I don't think that's a biblical, totally biblical view of, of who we are. Perturbative, there is a natural law. So we can't say there's not a natural law. I mean, I, I think he represents what I'll call the reformed consensus, not arising from a voluntary contract to society, but from a divine obligation being impressed by God upon the consciousness of man in his very creation. In other words, it came from God. It's God's impression in our consciousness. It's something we're accountable to God for, not some, not some group on a voluntary contract. So he would argue, no, the issue isn't a voluntary contract. Okay, all right. The, 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 you know, Turton would argue that there is, that this natural law within us is very much we're accountable to God. We can use contract arguments, that's all good and well, but we need to understand hierarchy. That yes, we can have a covenant with a, with a, in a civil society, but guess, who's, guess, who, guess who has to be in charge of that? God is above that. Where the covenanters in Scotland failed was not that they saw to worship, but they did. They did that honorably and greatly, and they died for it. But where they failed was in their making the covenant to be such a principle that, that it exceeded and, and, over, and ruled over all the normal Christian obligations to love your brother, to all the other things in the Bible, to try to get to try to, to try to work together in peace and amity. It basically said, well, you know, and, and, many, and when that came to America in the, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America was very much in line with those covenantal views. Okay, and, and it sort of had the extreme view to the point, almost to the point of where we can't be part of civil society, almost an, a, bordering on Anabaptist kind of views, but maybe not quite that far, okay? But nonetheless, they, they had a very, very extreme view 
on on the the fact that unless the king is unless the nation's a, a covenanted nation, we can't have obedience to it. Well, is that what Romans thirteen says? Is that the fundamental requirement? No, it's not. The fundamental requirement is we're we're probably most living in this world right here, okay? And 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 so the issue is it's okay to have a covenant, but under no condition can this covenant supersede or take precedence over the fundamental biblical principles. I mean, if you say this is going this is going this is going to be in and of itself something we're committed to. And we're going to ignore the, what the Bible says plainly about our uh, submission to authority. Well, then something's wrong with that view, and that's what happened. They kind of got the got got the persecution kind of drove them to that extreme view. So, if I'm getting any of these views taken to the extreme is wrong. You place the covenant in such a way that that's so, so governing and guiding that it over that it's higher than God's law. Well, then that's wrong. That's that's where you could go wrong with here. Okay. And it goes, one of the practical principles is, is the, I'm reading the bottom of natural, that it's founded and contains the practical principles of immovable truth, such as God should be worshipped, parents honored, live virtuously, injure no one, do unto others. There's a golden rule in its fundamental presence and the rule of authority. Although corrupted by the fall and obscured by sin, there is no mortal who cannot feel its force. So there is a natural law here. So I'm arguing, I'm, I'm up here, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to present arguments. There is such a thing as natural law. There's a conscience within us, and we have to give due rights to that conscience. There is such a possibility as a covenant nation, and hopefully we get to the point where we don't deny it or don't fight it or don't resist it. It can't happen. But in no situation shall that ever be the point where they eclipse the biblical principles. That's all, all I'm trying to say. Is there an answer here? Okay. Let me flip over. I don't have time to get into rethinking Republicanism. You can read that at your leisure. But essentially, uh, the, the issue, to get into more of the Vendicaia and, and its arguments and the arguments, of, you know, et cetera, in that, but I, I don't have time to get into that. All right. Okay. And, but I want to go to that, to this thing, the moral law issue right here. Let me go to that. That's the fundamental question I want to get to. The mor- is the moral law the same as the natural law? When you read Van Drunen, you kind of can, you kind of get, you kind of get made yourself falling asleep almost, <laughs> as he as he blurs the distinction between natural law and moral law. Okay, he, 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 he almost he he basically give you an example of the point. He takes Westminster Confession, larger Catechism, question ninety five, and uses that as a defense of the natural law. In a way it does, but let's be careful here. What is the moral law? I've got in small print the moral law. We all know what it is. It's the Ten Commandments, the golden rule. It's what the Bible says in its essence. Question nine. The moral law is of use to men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God and their duty binding them to walk according to the walk according to convince them of their disability to keep it. I must have left a word out there and of sinful pollution of their natural nature, hearts, and lives, to humble themselves in a sense of their sin and misery and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need to have Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Okay, well... No, that, 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 is that the same thing as right reason? No. Is that the same, you know, so, so yes, you know, and he uses this logic, and, and the whole argument is, well... The moral law 
Yeah, yes, this natural law is the foundation. The moral law is the foundation of the natural law within us rightfully. Okay, so the point I'm getting is, if indeed you follow this from a biblical sense, that the moral law is from God, we're made with that image within us, that's biblical, that's appropriate. Don't throw it out. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot there to be said. All I'm trying to say is don't then go and take the natural law and treat it as a topic in and of itself without due reference to the moral law. And Van Drunen has a lot of good things to say. He points out very clearly, and I've covered some of those. I'll review very briefly. He covers out very briefly in, in, in the original commandment from God through Noah about uh, uh, killing those who kill others, take the bloods of others. That power was given to the people. Okay, And there's a saying on the front of my thing here on the other side the, the the constituent is above the constituted in other words the people the things that make it up are more than the whole okay are more than the king in, in essence so so you have this natural law you have this moral right you have this sense of the people being constituted and and when i get back let me get back to genesis okay the people as a whole were given the obligation each one of the people and then as a people as a whole, they were given the obligation to make sure that blood was avenged. Okay, the shedding of false blood. It was obviously not legitimate war in whatever case, but a false, legit, uh, improper shedding of blood. That, that's an obligation we all have. And the argument he has is ultimately the people contract together through the civil magistrate. And, that, and, that, and again, Rutherford, I, you know, I've got a Rutherford in the room here, and they'd be careful, okay? But Samuel Rutherford was really what I would, represent, would say very much represented the covenanting ideas. But even Rutherford kind of gets a little bit too far in this direction in a lot of cases. A lot up here, a lot down here. He sort of tries to bring this thing together. But I think, he, in my opinion, he goes a little bit too far in this direction. Okay? But that's just my opinion. All right? Uh, but nonetheless, if anybody's tried to do it, nobody's done it better than he in trying to get it together in, in a formal sense. So that's there, you know, in the front page of the things that's there. But the point being is there is a there is there, there are some fundamental principles of what I'll call natural law within our constitution, which which we have that natural law written within it. I'm trying to write those down somewhere. Maybe I didn't do it. I didn't do a very good job, did I? But some of them might be when you go to this uh, France and the natural law theories. You know, kings are made by the people. The whole body of the people are above the king. You know, these things are both logical as well as probably reflect some truth within us, okay? And we, we can, we can with various natural law arguments like self-preservation, hatred of tyranny, okay? The ship analogy. He uses, Veray, not Veray, but uh, Brutus uses a ship analogy that the captain of a ship, we're in a ship with the captain of the ship. When he goes awry, it's the obligation for the good of the ship to overthrow him, etc., and, and and so yes, there maybe maybe the first mate or the person in authority has that primary obligation. I think legally and appropriately, there are good arguments there, but don't allow yourself to get to the argument where, where if you go to the point where you say I'm going to overthrow this on my own here, and you're not in a covenanted nation. Good luck. Good luck. That's all I got to say. Good luck. All right. You're kind, of, you're kind of getting out of Romans 13. You're going too far in that direction. So uh, I'm just trying to paint a circle and try to, tr trying to paint a circle of what does this line look like? What do these lines look like here? 
Okay, how can you go too far here? How can you go too far here? How can you go too far here? How do you find that balance? Is all I'm trying to say. We're going to move on in the time I got left, which is diminishing rapidly as I speak here. Okay, let me go back to that moral law question. So you have the first and second tables of the law. I think the reform consensus would be that the first table, you know, worshiping God, okay, is always binding, okay, and that and that there are cases and situations in the fifth, sixth, and eighth commandment where, well, these things, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, these things happen. Now, does that does that reflect the moral will? No, certainly, as opposed to the the moral principle and will of God. But again, you see society falling apart. Not necessarily make it right or wrong. I'm just arguing how Althesius kind of argued that point. Romans two fourteen. We have to say that there is a, a a conscience. So if you go to Romans two chapter, I'm gonna read through twelve through uh, uh, sixteen. There is a natural law within us, and we're accountable for. It. For as many have sinned without law, will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now I'm getting to the heart of it. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts, accused or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So there is a conscience within us. We, we have to recognize that, but we need to understand that it's fallen. It, it's a good thing. It helps us do, understand right and wrong, but it by itself is not the right it is not an independent guide of right and wrong apart from the Word of God. Yes, it's very helpful in those areas where there's confusion and ambiguity, etc. But if the Word of God says blue, don't make it red. That's all I'm trying to say. All right, that that's the point I'm trying to make. That that's a very important principle. There is such a thing, and even even our confession acknowledges. And there's a whole chapter on on on, on the who is the Lord of the conscience and how that works out. And and I don't want to violate that in any sense. We are made to have a conscience, and, and, and violation of that conscience by the way God made us is hurtful and harmful to us, okay? So I, I don't want to diminish that. That's a reality we need to recognize. We just need to not take it too far. There are three types, even the three types of law, general equity applies. There are two kingdom theories. I don't have time to distinguish all of that. But I'll have to say that there, there's such a myriad of what are the two kingdoms, one's the, one the the Reformed Presbyterian Church looks at it as the civil kingdom is all under a mediatorial kingship of Christ. That, that's one extreme. Rutherford's on the other extreme. Rutherford is very clear. There is God, you know, that you have a civil society. God is in charge of the civil society directly through the magistrate. He doesn't, he, he, he kind of doesn't really bring Jesus Christ much into this directly. It's more of a God, more of the Father, okay? And God, and he through the Son, creator's not denying any of that. But its emphasis is on God the Father directly connected to the state, and you have the, the the civil and you have the ecclesiastical authority, which is under the mediatorial kingship of Jesus Christ. I think that's probably closer to the reform consensus. It's certainly closer to Turretin, who I give as quote the reform consensus. There's a twofold kingdom of Jesus, and and Gillespie said these same words. Who's a, a Scottish uh, Presbyterian, similar to Rutherford. 
twofold kingdom of Jesus Christ. One, as he is the eternal Son of God, reigning together with the Father and the Holy Ghost over all things. So, so again, the, the right idea is that, yet yeah, Jesus is ruling, but he's ruling together with the Father and the Holy Ghost. The Trinity is alive in the real world. Believe it or not, the Trinity doesn't only live in the church. The Trinity is alive in the real world, and it's bringing about all things. So, so that, that view, I think, is more the biblical right view of understanding this. And in that view, Christ is bringing all things under submission to his feet. And maybe someday there will be a covenant nation. Maybe there will be a great uh, revival. Maybe there will be the coming in of the Gentiles. Maybe there will be the mass conversion of the Jews. I don't know, but I'm saying I think the Bible kind of hints in that direction. All right. But the other is a mediator and head of the church. Okay. And Turretin does not speak of Christ as mediator, but as Logos in the temple, in the temple kingdom. He's not the mediator. He's very much along a Rutherford in that sense. So, so, so there are some important distinctions here of, of trying to keep those two kingdom theories lined up. It's like I, I could have organized this by the two kingdom theories, but that would, be, that would be using confusion to clarify confusion. So I decided not to do that. Okay. I'm just trying to give you the, what I'll call the purest view, which is what I would call Turretin. Gillespie, I think, is the clearest understanding of that, uh, that the Son does have a role in, in, in the kingdoms of the world because all will come under submission to him. Calvin sees the regulative principle only according to the word as a rule in the church binding the conscience, but the civil authority must be obeyed unless the commands violate what Scripture requires. Okay, and... You know, I don't think even Van Drunen disagrees with that. I mean, this is this principle over here. Right. And, and so the other way of looking at this, and I'll digress, hopefully not lose my time here, is you have, you have, you have within, within the Christian man himself, you know, where, where you have obedience, faith, and no condition. And there's some sense in which there's no condition. We can, there's no way we save ourselves. Absolutely true. Obedience is required. Absolutely true. Faith is required, absolutely true. So the, so the question is, do you, some people want to frame things like the Armenians would, would frame it this way, faith, all that matters, okay? Uh, so it depends on how you want to frame this topic. The black has got lost here in this argument, okay? <laughs> okay, depends on how you frame this topic. But what I'm getting at is that if you draw this schematically, you have here what I'll call the testament, the covenant, and the law, okay? You can't see my things here. But, but you have the natural, this is... This is this plane right here is by the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. This plane right here is how we are made, who we are. And when we're Christians, we're remade in the image of Christ, more so. We were planted a new will and a new heart. That's this, that's this plane right here. The Holy Spirit is involved in that. The Holy Spirit, the grace, I'll use maybe grace as the word. It's not some animal within us, but God's work to bring that about and that change. But it's also sanctification where God transforms us and brings us into, into covenant communion with him. So, so again, you've got grace here. Now, what, what, I said, what I said a couple of weeks ago was that if the Jesuits took that as nature, that both in the civil and the, and the religious sphere, that it was the natural, that there's nature, the forces of nature were doing this, okay, rather than the grace, all right? Now, you can have, you can, I would just put some possibilities here. Grace, grace. Nature, nature, grace, nature. Okay, I'll call this a civil and a theological. So you can come up with a way of framing this in terms of how it goes. But when I tried that, I realized, hey, 
when we talk about nature, we're not, we don't know what we're talking about. We, 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 some people look at it as law of reason, so I, I left that out. So but there, maybe there's a nature capital letter in the way God described it, a nature little letter in the way man describes it. Maybe you could come up with a schema like that. Maybe that's another day and another dollar. Not my goal right here. But in summary, there are three biblical approaches. There is Calvin, Beret, God, law, submission, uh, obedience, that, 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 that we're sheep, we're not wolves. We need to know who we are. We're made to worship God and then guard. There's Knox. There's a possibility of a Christian nation and covenant. I, I would be the last person to deny that possibility. I think, I think our nation, our Christianity, would be very much refreshed by reminding ourselves that that is a possibility and something we would desire. But understand that only by God's grace is that possible. Uh, there is the Brutus. There is the Vindicae. There's both God's law and natural law. It's not, you know, properly this book is a, within the reform camp. I mean, it's not much different than Rutherford, to be honest with you. But on the front page, let me flip back over. Let me just warn you. Let me inoculate you, okay? On the front page, that, that the line of reasoning, which even includes to some degree Rutherford, but not so much so, of the Amamarkamak, okay, sure, is somebody who's posing revolutionary political theory based on Roman law. And again, animal law, quoting somebody, disagrees, seeing this as inseparable political and religious laws. There are two frames. There is the covenant or constitutional framework, and there is also the individual. So really what I'm saying in a larger sense is there is a constitution, there is an individual, and there is the Bible over here in a way trying to bring this together. I'm not sure I've succeeded in properly drawing this. Good luck. Y'all can finish this topic up and come up with the right answer. But the mon, mon, monarchimists, it should be monarchimists, I misspelled it wrong over there. These frame, the, the, there's a lot in this uh, French line because they were just really trying to figure out, we can't, we don't, we, don't, we, we don't understand how to get this. George Buchanan in England, very much, and again, that statement I read, the constituent is above the constituted, uh, that can be, that's good. There is within us as Americans that true, but let me draw one other distinction in time. And that is that is when we had Nero in power in Romans 13. We have another distinction where in 1688, the Glorious Revolution in England, where John Churchill, <clears throat> forbear of somebody else we know with that name, agreed to join with William and Mary and overthrow King James and establish the second and establish a uh, Christian nation again in England. Again, I can't get into the details there, but the point being is that, was that rebellion legitimate? It was done by lawful magistrates. These were, these were uh, uh, the, the woman, the, Mary was uh, related to King James. I mean, you know, they, they were, they were King James I, okay. And so there was a lawful overthrow of government that followed all the principles from a biblical perspective and again, that doesn't mean individuals should go out and do this, but there is a legitimate point where you can overthrow a government, and particularly this government based on Knox's view was a Christian nation. But to put it in context, the issue was James II was a, a renowned Catholic. He was determined to establish Catholicism as a religion in England, and so there was a rebellion to fight against that. Was that legitimate? Well. Maybe Ray would say no, Knox would say yes, okay? 
And so the issue is, how do you function? But I will argue that has, that has, a, that has pretty much, a, you can make a strong argument for that. You then have the French Revolution. You all know how that ended. Okay, that did not end. Well, you have the American Revolution. Okay, the American Revolution. You have, you have, you have. What would you say? Wouldn't that, isn't that more natural law? Isn't that more based on natural law principles of rights and privileges and obligations and whatnot? Although there are many Presbyterians involved in it, many there. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying we need to be careful as Americans not to drink too much of the Kool-Aid. Okay and forget who we were made. We were made to worship God. We were, and made, the family is made in an image to worship God. That's our purpose. That's our being. We're here to live the glory of God. That's who we are. We are not going to be happy in a society apart from that. We're, we're going to be strangers and pilgrims. Okay? God as much says that. All right? we're, we're, not, we're not made. We're not made because we're made in the image of God. We're not made for that kind of life. So is there a possibility to find some temporal shelter for a time in this covenant land? Maybe so. So I'll leave it open for discussion in the time we got left, which isn't much. So thank you for listening. Mm. You got any discussion or questions or points you want to make? I always find it interesting when we look at Romans 13, and I'm not saying you, did, you didn't do this, but in a lot of the discussions of Romans 13, they leave out the anthropology of Romans 1 and 2. Yes, yes. Right? So yes. Paul doesn't get to Romans 13 by skipping over what right. he says about man in right. Romans 1 and 2. Right. And you brought in Romans 2. Um, today, I think we're trying to apply Romans 13 in a vacuum. Yep. And one of the big divides between what you have on the board with these different revolutions is the Enlightenment. Yep, that's a good point. That's so a good point. That's we a, introduce pretty much natural law pre-enlightenment is more according to the anthropology from the Bible, where natural law is equal to the image of God in man. Post-enlightenment, natural law, all you got to do is read. I don't recommend reading Kant to anybody because it's a terrible reading. But if you read Kant and you read uh, all of those thinkers, uh, philosophers from Enlightenment, what they start to do is separate man's capacity to reason from God. Man can reason in a vacuum. So then we get revolutions like the yeah. French Revolution, yeah. the American Revolution, right. because there's a separating of man's reason from God's law. Right. Okay, so the my question then is, what does civil obedience look like in a society where God's law as the basis of reason is completely rejected. So right. we're not in the swimming pool of the 1600s anymore. We've we're not up here. You're right. We're, we're right. living on this plane, right? Yeah, yeah. We jumped to another pool completely. Right. The Enlightenment right. changed right. everything. Right. So when the civil magistrate tells us that you must obey these rules, and we ask as Christians, well, where did those rules come from? And they said, us. <laughs> I made it up that might makes right, that the source of law is who's ever in power, which we're seeing that increasingly with all these, never mind, I'm not making that, but whoever's in charge, might makes right. So what does obedience look like then in light of that? What does Romans 13 look like in light of, of that? Because Paul has an anthropology where everyone's playing with this understanding that their source of reason comes from a higher authority. Yeah, yeah. 
Right. We don't live in that world anymore. Right. Romans right. 13 doesn't, I mean, it applies because it's the word of God. Right. We also have to account for the anthropology that we're not using anymore. Right. You're right. I would go further and say, I don't think in the post-enlightenment world we even can understand. Okay, we, we, we're, our, we're, it's like we're bathing in the Kool-Aid, okay, which is removing our understanding and puts a veil between us and Scripture, okay? All I'm trying to argue in what I've said here is that let's not reduce this issue of obedience to this plane. That's a miserable place to live. Let's remember how we were made originally and hope that maybe at some point in time in heaven we'll be there. Maybe on earth we never will be. Maybe this idea of a, of a, of a coming invasion. But let me just say, it, we, we think it's possible. Is it possible for God to make the majority of people, and a few will be saved over and over. The Bible mentions how few, how few, how few. Biblically, it may even be an impossibility. I, I, I could argue that. But, gosh, what, don't you want your family to be that way? Don't you want your church to be that way? Don't you want your society to be that way? But isn't that how we, how we by nature are made and happy? Why do, we have to, why do we have to be like fish living in air? Okay, We're not made to live in this world. So anyway, anybody else got something to add here? I think it's important to see with Romans 13 as well that uh, that passage is not, like, the way it's framed by some is that because someone is filling that office of civil magistrate, therefore whatever they do uh, to bring terror is a terror to evil. Mm -hmm. Right. And whenever they praise, therefore, it's good. Right. We, we have a terrible problem with this in America in general. Right. That when our quote-unquote side says this is good, oh, it's good. Or when the other side says something is good, oh, well, it can't be good because right. they're the other side, so it's bad. Right. But what Romans 13 is laying out is what a civil magistrate ought to be. Yep, yep, yep. He yep. is to be. Yeah. A servant for the good. Right. Now, God, of course, is sovereign and appoints whoever he appoints. But we have to remember that just because someone is filling that that office, that doesn't make disobedience, quote unquote, to them sinful. Because as Andrew said, Romans one anthropology right. is still involved. They they don't get an automatic clean slate. I mean right. then you're getting into like the divine right, right of kings and right. stuff like that. that just Therefore, it's good. But, um, and you brought up too. Don't have time to get into it. The difference in our American context versus what they're talking about in the Reformation. Like, arguably, in some sense, the the population of America is um, over the civil leaders yeah. in America. That's true. Right. Like, we are the magistrates. Yeah, you you could argue rightfully from natural law that man being made the way that there, there is that that's a fundamental principle of the way we're made okay and and that if you're defending that that's fine all i'm saying is just be careful because it's a slippery slope you can fall downhill very fast particularly since you've been your mind has been oozed in this idea of a wrong view of natural law 
to the point where you don't even know what the right view is anymore. You just need to be careful. Mm -hmm. And if you have to hide in a corner, brothers and sisters, hide in that corner right there, okay? Because you can be sure that that, is, that, that will not get you into trouble, okay? You have to hide in a corner. But I'm just saying, God didn't make us to live in a corner. God made us to be a society in worship of Him. Okay, that's who we are in our nature. All right, we, uh, maybe we'll pick this up again. There's a lot to go here. I'm, I'm just going to declare victory right now. Thank you. I guess, Trent, you're picking up next week? Or who's picking up next week? Okay. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, this is a difficult topic. Help us to understand that we're just beginning to open it up for our mind to think about it. We've got a long way to go to understand how to properly behave and to, and to respond in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.